0: Hey, what a week, right? What a disastrous slash awesome week. Okay, raise your hands uh, if... So I want to take a poll here. I want to know... um, if it, you can only have two camps, right? It was either this was the greatest week ever or your scale tips to that side, right? Like no school and it was fun and every and I got to sled and all that kind of stuff. So like if the scale tips to that side, greatest week ever, or if the scale tips to this was the worst week ever, frostbite, I lost all my fingers. Like if it's, you know, I know several people have, have houses that are flooding and all that kind of disaster. So show of hands, raise your hand if this was a disaster week for you, just disastrous, we got, look at that. Okay, show of hands if this was like tips towards the greatest week ever. It's got to be one or the other. Wow, way to go, way to go. And then the people who didn't raise your hand, your nines on the Enneagram. That's what that means. That's, that's what happens there. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, okay, so for me, let me just show my cards and all the bitterness of all the hands raised. I almost set our house on fire on Monday night. Yeah, 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 that's worth whooping for, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we got two boys, Charlie and Miles, and our power went off, I don't know, like wee hours of the morning on, on Monday morning. And so we made a fire in our fireplace, no power, but we made a fire in our fireplace and we were okay. And that was like around 10 a.m. we made this fire in our fireplace and, you know, we were just surviving, camping it. And, and it was day one, so it was like still fun and like our kids were going outside and playing and it was still like a fun adventure. And then it comes time for bedtime around 730 you know, we get, which is when we put our kids to bed, <laughs> when I go to bed, but when we put our kids to bed, and so we got like our boys mattresses and put them in the living room, and got the couches all made up, and we were going to glamp, right, we were going to glamp in our living room, we got the fire going, and be going all day, and I got all this fresh wood, and I was ready, ready to make it happen, and the, and the fire was going good, and then I noticed um, a couple of minutes, like we had put some fresh logs on the fire to, to really get it hot, so that when we fell asleep, you know, we wouldn't wake up as ice cubes, and I looked over and God there was smoke filling my house. Like filling my house. I have a kind of a high ceiling and there's like this wooden beam that runs through it. And I couldn't see the wooden beam. Like it was just some straight out of a movie. And so my kids were like panicked and I'm like, get outside. And and we rush them outside and, and I could not figure out what happened there. It didn't seem like there was fire anywhere. But uh, there was smoke everywhere, right, smoke everywhere. And so we're opening the doors, and then my dog's scared because of the fire alarm. So my dog runs off into the snow to die probably. We got him. The dog was fine. We got the dog. I tracked it. I actually tracked my dog old school because the snow, right, I just, I've wa- I followed its steps. And then, went, okay, it circled this tree, and then it went that way. Um, we ended up getting out fine, and everything was good cool. I mean, it's not cool. It's still a disaster zone. And anybody who's in my family night group, we are not meeting at my house tonight because it just, everything smells like smoke. Um, and so if you're in my family night, we're going bowling instead. So hooray for bowling. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I don't have, sorry, I don't have a better house. Um, but it just, I mean, our entire house and every aspect of our house, right? Like our boys, we got it aired out technically, but still that was Monday night as of yesterday, it just reeked of smoke. And like you walk down to like my kid's bedroom, which is on the opposite side of the house and all their stuffed animals smell like they've been like sitting in a campfire. It's everywhere, man. You will be around me over the course of the next month and you'll get little whiffs of like, there's that pastor who smells like a campfire constantly. All of our clothes, everything just smells like like smoke in our entire house. And it's all because this little mechanism in our chimney, which had been working fine since 10 a.m decided to malfunction or maybe I hit it with a log or something happened to where our flue closed. And it's this little piece of metal and this hinge that keeps that piece of metal up and it closed. And because the flu closed, our entire house now is, is unlivable and just got within four minutes completely filled with smoke because this one little thing fell and, and trapped uh, all of that smoke. It couldn't exit the chimney and it had to go someplace and so it went in our house. <clears throat> what we're going to talk about in Romans chapter 11 is I think a tool that honestly, as I have been obviously thinking about my house and that stupid little piece of metal and how massively important and how that one little thing, that one little thing has just shaped my family's week. And honestly, my family's next few weeks in pretty massive ways. um, I believe that there is a tool for us in the Christian life that massively shapes everything else. And I believe that tool is trust. It's, it's faith and it's trust. And it's this thing that God gives us as a gift. It's this muscle that we as believers can exercise and work at. But that trust and faith mechanism in our life as believers affects everything else. And when there is not trust and when there is not faith in my life, when there is fear and when there is doubt, which is in all of our lives, guys, all of our lives have fear and doubt. But when that is pr- running the show, when that has, has hatched down on me, man, it is amazing how toxic my life gets. It's amazing how that fear and that doubt just takes over and reeks of everything else in my life. Um, and chapter 11 of Romans is gonna really start to unpack some of the ways that trust is gonna play into uh, into our lives in big ways. And so uh, that's where we are. We're in Romans chapter 11. We've been going through the whole book of Romans. Uh, chapters one through eight were really this just Beautiful picture of the gospel in the depth of the gospel and how we are sinners and how we don't deserve God but he gives us this free gift of grace and we see it played out and what it looks like to walk in the spirit and then we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11 and this is the last chapter and what I would say is this three chapter section that the Apostle Paul in Romans gives us that is his just deep end of theology. If you remember a few weeks ago I preached Romans chapter 9 if you were here for that sermon it was heavy and it was Also, I think in some ways really beautiful to see a God who is so merciful, but a lot of him that we don't understand. And the arguments that Paul starts in 9, he really takes through chapter 10 and then concludes in chapter 11. And so 9, 10, and 11 is the theological deep end of Romans. He asks all these questions, and they're hard questions, and I love that the Bible does that. I love that the Bible asks hard questions. I love that the writers of scripture are like, well, wait, wait a second, what about this? And does that mean God is that? And that seems mean and that seems unfair. And let me ask hard questions and then answer them. And so that's what Paul does. And so here in chapter 11, he's gonna do that. A little preview of where we're going starting next week. So t- today, I'm going to cover all of chapter 11. We're going to do a flyby. It's 36 verses, so we're not going to be able to read everything and get into everything for the sake of time, but we're going to do a flyby. Next week, starting chapter 12, chapter 12 through the end of the book is all really practical. What the Apostle Paul does in Romans is he unpacks the gospel really beautifully. Here's what it looks like to live in the spirit, and then he gets in this deep theological you know, pit nine through 11. And then starting in chapter 12, he says, and this is now how we should be living in light of all of this theology and who God is and what this means and history of the old Testament and this and that, and all of this, all of this heavy stuff. Now starting next week is here's how we should live. And so literally next week, I'm just preaching two verses. I'm preaching Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and it answers the question, how do I know God's will? So for anyone who's curious, any seniors who are like, what am I supposed to do with my life? Or anybody who's like, man, how do I know God's will? How do I figure out what he wants for me? Um, I think the greatest answer to that is in the beginning of Romans chapter 12. So that's where we're going. That's the preview, a little bit of review. Missed you guys last week. Here we go. Uh, Chapter 11 is three sections, right? I'm going to preach it in three sections this morning, and it's going to ask a theological question. It's going to answer it. And then I'm going to step aside, and I'm going to get a little personal on each of those sections of something that the lord i feel like has put on my heart that's straight from the text of of a way i think that this truth impacts our doubt and can build our trust this morning so three questions three big sections Uh, the first one right off the bat question one that paul is gonna that, that paul is gonna ask is he's gonna ask this theological question is god done with the jewish nation is god done with with jews um, and it's this question he look, look at the very beginning. We'll just throw it up there. The very beginning of verse 1 in chapter 11. Uh, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And what he means by this is Paul is saying, he's asking the question now in this long three-chapter section of, of theology and hard questions. He's saying, hey, what's up with the Jews? Is God done with the Jews? Because here's what's happening. Got to give you some Got to give you some background. In the Old Testament, God showed up to Abraham and said, I'm going to create a people, and through this people that I elect, that I select, I'm going to make my glory known through this people, and I'm going I'm to teach them how to follow me, and I'm going to be in a relationship, I'm going to be in functionally a marriage with my people, and those were the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, right, that is who... God had made this relationship with, and so throughout the Old Testament, it is a story. The whole first half of our Bibles is our Old Testament that is the roots of our faith and God interworking in this relationship with the Jewish people, and that's what it's all about is the Jews and God and this struggle, and they keep getting it wrong, and they keep forgetting him, and they keep blowing it, and we'll talk about that in the second section, and, and so they just keep, and then God just continues to be faithful, which I can so relate to. I can so relate to a God who just continues to be faithful people who blow it and people who make mistakes and people who get easily distracted. And so that's the story of the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up. The New Testament happens. Jesus is the Messiah that the entire Old Testament was waiting for. But most of the Jewish people in the day of Jesus missed it. They missed it. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. And and they crucified him along with the Roman government. They crucified him. And so now here we have, uh, here Paul is writing and he's saying now the gospel, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus Christ is now our only way to a relationship with the God of the universe. And so here we have this this Jesus thing. And all of a sudden, people are getting saved left and right, but it's not Jews. Because Jews are still thinking, man, we got a system, we're still waiting for our Messiah. It's Gentiles. And Gentiles is basically everyone else. The Jewish people, but when we see the word Gentile, we mean everyone who's not a Jew right? It's all these other nations. It's all these other people who had other gods and polytheistic gods and Greeks and Romans and and people all over the people in Corinth and, and Ephesus and all these other towns that weren't Jews are getting saved and they're realizing Jesus was the Messiah. He is our hope to the creator who we have always known we were designed for but didn't know how to connect to him. It's through Christ. So that brings Paul to this question. Well, what is going on with the Jews? Does that mean that chapter is done? Does that mean all that God was doing in the Old Testament? He's like, ah, oh, well, that didn't work. Moving on, I'll move on to the Gentiles now and, and, and when they're done. Look at how he answers it. <clears throat> he answers it. I ask then, this is verse 1 through 5. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. Verse four, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, so Paul is answering these three really kind of heady, kind of Bible nerdy theological questions. What do you do with the Jews in the Old Testament now that Jesus has come? Are we done with them? Paul answers it two ways. He gives two examples, if you see there. First, he says, no, God's not done with them because I'm a Jew. Paul says, I am an Israelite. I am a Jew. He says, I am from that line of of Abraham. He even says, I'm from the line of Benjamin. So Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob decided to change. Well, God decided to change Jacob's name to Israel. 12 kids. One of those kids was Benjamin. And Paul is like, that is my lineage. So Paul says, clearly he's not done with the Jewish people because look at me. I'm a Jew who has now been saved because I've put my faith in Christ. Right, just because I'm Jewish by heritage, I've still found Jesus as my savior. I know that he's the Messiah. And so he uses that argument. And then secondly, he uses the argument of Elijah in the Old Testament. Gnarly stuff. Elijah is a baller. Like Elijah is in the Old Testament just a, a stud when it comes to faith and just the what he was up against in the time that he was up against. I mean, he was living in a world where everyone was just worshiping Baal, this satanic God, and they had all these gods. And so he challenges basically these Baal worshipers to a fight, a spiritual showdown. And it's like, my God versus your God. And of course, Elijah dominates and God shows up and does awesome miracles. And everyone's like, whoa, this guy's amazing. And then he goes up on this mountain and he's still discouraged, right? He won the spiritual showdown, but he's discouraged, and he goes to God, and he's like, man, I am alone. Like, I got nobody else. Like, this nation, this whole countryside, I mean, all of these people, they go and they kill Jews, they've torn down all of the temples for Jewish worship. I am, I am the only one left, and God says, no, you're not. God says, I think very graciously and very kindly, you don't see what I see. I, God even gets specific. There are 7,000 people that I know I have set apart for myself that I'm doing a work in that Elijah, who's the, who, who should know he's an expert, but God has said, no, no, you are not alone. I have, I have set apart this, this section of people for me. You might not be able to see them. You might be discouraged. You might feel alone, but that's not the case. I'm not done with my people. Um, here's where I want to get personal, right? into this first section first of three. Here's where I want to get personal. And this hit me as I've been studying it for two weeks, really. Um, You guys, as young adults in the world you live in, if you do not feel this way now, you will feel this way at some point. You will feel alone. And when I say that, I don't just mean socially alone. I don't just mean socially isolated. I mean, you will feel that if you try to follow Christ, bring him glory, live your life in a way that is, is righteous, is right living, responding well to him, you're trying to follow Christ, you will have a dark night of the soul where you will sit one day and say, man, it feels like everyone around me is worshiping other gods. It feels like I'm the only one who's just trying and it's hard and I feel like I'm drowning in this ocean of people who I love and they're good and my friends and, but, but I am the only one who it feels like is really trying to do this. And it doesn't feel like it's worth it. And it feels like giving up. And I don't know how. And sometimes I get sucked under the undertow along with them. That is so real for the world that you guys live in. To be a follower of Christ is to be set apart. And and the world that you live in, the, the world that you live in has a definition of what it looks like to find satisfaction. And it is not this. It's not the word of God. It's not scripture. They say this is how you'll feel satisfied and fulfilled as a college student, as a young adult, as a young person. This is what you need. And there are things that will leave you empty. And I know there are some of you who are feeling alone. The truth that we see from the God of the universe that is only a matter of our trust. We either believe him or we don't. Right? That flu is either open or it is closed is that you are not. Right? Like, it's as simple as that. It is a simple acknowledgement that the God of the universe, whether it was the Apostle Paul, whether it was Elijah surrounded by Satan worshipers, or whether it was you sitting in your sorority house, or you sitting at a party, or you watching your friends on social media, feeling alone, feeling isolated, feeling like am I the only one who's trying to live this thing out? And the truth is really simple. No, God has done an incredible work. I mean, this room, the fact that we have, you know, over 400 college students, in the course of a Sunday morning, come and worship Jesus in a coffee shop and wake up and that, that is a testament to God is doing something. The fact that there's incredible churches, man, what God is doing at Paradox and Doxology and Antioch, they're just some incredible churches doing really sweet, good ministry that we root for. We know that God is at work in the lives of young people and college students. And so if you feel alone, if you feel like you are drowning, you feel like you're isolated, you feel like, man, I'm the only one trying around here that is a lie. And our hope and our prayer, and by the end of the sermon, that, man, our trust would be increased. That incredibly important tool of trust. I believe you when you say, I'm not alone. And that, yes, you would tangibly reach out to help. If you're plugged in here, I mean, get more plugged in. Reach out to us. Get in a student group. Get in a family night. Get one-on-one mentoring. Reach out. Ask for help. P- you Take our bet. Say, prove it. I feel alone. Help me. Walk through community. Go go on a spontaneous spring break trip with a bunch of strangers you don't know and worship in the woods for three days. And then come back and be like, okay, I'm not alone. There's other people who love Jesus. Would we believe that? Would we believe that we are not alone? That's been our prayer, big time. Question two, second section of Romans chapter 11. Second little thing that Paul does here is he says, okay, so how did Israel fail God right? The question he, he then asks is, okay, so he's not done with Israel yet, but where did they go wrong? How did they blow it? What exactly happened? And so he unpacks it. I'm just going to read verses six and seven and then paraphrase a lot for you. Verses six and seven say this, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then verse seven, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Um, this is a this alludes. One of the things that this alludes is it alludes to this idea, and he even unpacks it later. Uh, the same theme that he, Paul, introduced in chapter nine. This idea of elect that God has kind of called people specifically to himself, and then he's hardened other people's hearts. Um, I don't have time to get into all of that, but if you want to chat, it's a, it's a heavy, deep theological issue of the, the design of God's election. Um, it's what we, I preached a few weeks ago in, in Romans chapter 9, um, but would love to keep talking with you about that, if that's something um, that would be beneficial to you. Um, but he, he, he alludes to that, right? He talks about, man, there's those who elect and those who are hardened, but then really what he's saying is, hey, they've blown it because they missed Grace, what what happened to Israel, to answer the question, how did Israel fail God, is because they traded God's grace for works, right? They traded, hey, I love you as the God of the universe, and I am extending my grace to instead works, which means I'm going to do a lot of things to earn righteousness, And so instead of the relationship being a relationship based on grace from a God who they need grace towards, it became a relationship where they thought, we can make this transactional, right? We we can make this a transactional relationship. And instead of just sitting under grace and submitting to that, what we're going to do instead is we're going to create a religion and a bunch of boxes to check. And if we check these boxes, then we, we must be okay still. And God says, that's how you failed me. That's not what I built, and that's not what our relationship was built based on. And that wasn't that wasn't the agreement we had. The agreement was uh, I am going to show you grace and you're going to submit to that and follow me under grace. Uh, but they turned it into works. Um, this happens all the time in our life. It happened in the Old Testament. They would they would be saved and they would they would be set free, and the God, for example, they were under captivity in Egypt, they get set free, they walk through the Red Sea, incredible stuff. Moses goes up to commune with God, and what do they do? They start. They start building idols they quickly forget all throughout Scripture, um, especially in the Old Testament they're given these rules and rituals that God has given them to remind them of the relationship they have um, but they turn that into this transactional boxes to check um, I've heard an illustration before I think it's good of the trash man right I have a I have a transactional relationship with the waste management company at my house right I pay them every month. It comes out of my Fort Worth water bill, water and, and trash pickup. And every month they withdraw money from my checking account. And every week I wheel out my trash and we got a relationship. I give all my junk in there and all my trash and I wheel it to the curb. And then they come and they pick it up and they dispose of it for me. That's a transaction. And they hold their end and I hold end. If I don't pay, right? If I just stop paying them, then they're going to stop picking up my trash. That's what, so, that's what the Israelites have done to their relationship with God. They've taken a generous father who wants to have a relationship with his people and they've turned it into transactional. We do that all the time. Man, mean, you, you maybe have heard the gospel a hundred times, but the gospel is not a gospel of boxes to check. To follow Christ is not transactional. If you're sitting here and you think, okay, to be a good Christian To to have a close, intimate relationship with God, it means I must do this, 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 this. It means I've got to to weigh the scales in, in the favor of doing more good things than more bad things. All of those things are lies that the entire Israelite nation got caught in, and that's why they failed. Instead, you have a God who says, no, 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 no. I am offering you grace. You don't earn this. It's not transactional. I am, am setting you free and entering into a relationship with you as a father. Do you trust me? Do you believe that I love you just the way you are? And then is there life change? Is there behavior change? Is there things that we do and don't do? Yes. But those things come from the fact that we have a relationship with a God who loved us first and is offering us grace. The good deeds we do, the good works we do, They come as a response from a relationship that's founded by a gracious father. When we get that backwards, when we put the cart before the horse, when we say, I've got to do these things so that he will love me, we have a God who's standing there saying, why are you doing all those things to earn my love? I love you. Come and be with me, be in a relationship with me. And yes, you will see your behavior will change if you're in a genuine relationship. There should be holiness and righteousness and and right living, but it comes as a response everything for the Christian life. That's what the Israelites got wrong. That's what we still struggle to get wrong uh, today. Let me get real personal if I haven't gotten personal enough. Uh, one thing, actually, I-, I wanted to make a note of this. Baptism, baptism is a response, right? Um, we believe theologically and biblically that baptism doesn't save you, that you are not saved because you are baptized. We believe because of parts of chapter 11, but also all of Romans chapter 6 and the, the entirety of the New Testament, that nowhere in it has God said, you do this and then you get saved. That's works righteousness. Instead, we believe that baptism is a response. And so baptism is one of those things that if somebody has put their faith in Christ and they've said, you know what? And maybe they're just brand new at this thing. I want that Father, would you adopt me as a kid who doesn't deserve adopting, but I want to know this good father? And, and, and when you enter into that relationship and say, I'm going to surrender my life to Christ, and I'm putting my faith, that trust in Christ, then baptism becomes a response. And the, the picture of somebody being dunked underwater and being brought up is this picture of, hey, I was dead to myself, I was buried, and now I'm being raised alive spiritually. And now the life I live isn't my own because I've been adopted and I'm his and I'm grateful for it. And I'm covered in grace and nothing I can do can separate me from this God. And that's what baptism is a picture of. It doesn't, it's not what saves us. It's a response after we have put our faith in Christ. We actually have a couple people have reached out to us and we're actually going to do a baptism uh, a couple Thursday nights from now, March 4th. We're going to have in this room, uh, you know, Thursday night, 9 o'clock, we're going to have worship and and just worship our brains out, and then baptize anyone who really has truly put their faith in Christ. Or maybe they were baptized as a as an infant or a baby, but they didn't actually know what saving faith was, and they hadn't really done that. Um, putting that on your radar if that's something that you're interested in. Um, I don't believe in spontaneous baptisms. I want to know you. I want to hear your story. I want to walk with you. I want to make sure that that man you understand what you're doing. Um, and so, if you'd like to get baptized. Um, then come and talk to us before that night and let us know um, just your story. And, and even if you're just curious and you're like, well, I got baptized as a kid and just help walk me through the theology. We love, we geek out on those kind of conversations because we see Jesus show up in them. So just putting that on your radar, we'll announce it next week uh, more officially. But, but we, that's what we believe about baptism. We believe it's a response. We believe our life is a response. So for us, personal, let me get personal, as if it wasn't already personal enough with the gospel. Um, if you find yourself feeling tired of doing what is right, right, you just feel weary and tired of checking the boxes, list after list, being good enough, trying to keep the scales tipped so that God isn't angry at you, so that you can be a good Christian and you're doing all, and you're exhausted from that. Um, I want to remind you that you don't have to do that. Rest in his grace and obey as a response Rest in His grace and obey as a response. If you find yourself weary and just want to give up because it feels like doing the Christian thing is just too many steps to keep up with, stop trying and rest in His grace. And then, as you experience His grace, obey as a response to how He loves you. There should be righteous living in our lives. Our lives should look more and more like Christ. We should walk away from the things that we know aren't going to not only bring him glory, but bring us life and life abundant. But it should come as a response. We want you to know what that's like. We want you to experience a relationship with the God of the universe that produces that kind of obedience. Would we trust? Would we really believe that? It's an easy thing to say. It's an easy slide to put up on a screen. Oh yeah, I'm gonna rest in his grace. I'm gonna obey as a response. Would today our trust and our faith increase? Holy Spirit, would you do that? Last question. How do the Gentiles fit in? Talked about Israelites, talked about the Jews, what they do wrong, what happened with them. Okay, how do the Gentiles, how do we, most of us in this room, how do we fit in who aren't Jewish uh, by birth? How does kind of everyone else fit into this? Verses 17 through 23. Here's what Paul says. But if some of the branches were broken off, he's referencing the Jewish people. Some of those branches were broken off because they they didn't follow Jesus. They didn't put their faith in him. They were still trying to earn it. But if some of the branches are broken off and you, about Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the other and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. Here's what we see, and for the sake of time, I'm gonna move quick through this. There's so much in, in Romans 11, but um, I, I want us to at least land on this. What we see is a generous and gracious God, but a God who takes sin seriously. Make no, no mistake, as much as we talk about grace in this ministry, we also know that we have a holy God who desires holiness. And the grace we have is from a God who says, yes, I desire holiness. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the just dues of punishment to my son, Jesus. And so we see this incredibly kind, gracious God, but also who takes sin very seriously. And, and we have a God who has then taken those who are outside of the family, outside of the tree, the olive tree is what he, he gives an example. And he's grafted them in these wild branches that he comes and he grafts into the tree, into his family. That's you and I. Theologically, in the history of what God has been doing, first century, this was, this had never been done before. All of a sudden, the gospel is opened up to everyone else to say, put your faith in me and I will graft you in. Um, It's this amazing thing that God does that Paul answers. "Look Look how the Gentiles have been formed into this tree by a God who can do whatever he wants. He can cut the branches that he desires and he can graft in and then he can regraft them later if he so chooses because he's kind. So here's where I want to get personal and this is the, the last little personal thing. Let's say you find yourself doubting, right? The lack of trust, right? That, that tool in your life is weak in the area that you don't feel good enough, right? You do not feel your feelings, your doubt and your fear, which feelings are a hard thing, a scary thing to trust. You don't feel good enough to be in this family of God, to be at the table with the God of the universe, a holy and righteous God. Maybe you know other people who are following Jesus and they're doing it really genuinely and you're like, I am so far from that. That is not me. And you find yourself here this morning and you're like, I, my sin, my life, I'm not even close to being what I, I think I should be. What do we see here about this idea being grafted in, a bunch of wild shoots that don't belong in the first place? True. right? The answer to that question of, man, I don't feel good enough, the answer is, yeah, you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. But his grace is good enough. His grace is good enough. What, what, why did he graft in all these wild olive shoots into this olive tree that don't really belong there? Because he's gracious and kind. I don't know why he did it. Why a sinner like me, me? who who still, as a pastor, I'm supposed to have it together, and I continually get distracted and wander and find my hope and find my security and other things. Why does he continue to be patient and kind and, and craft me in and keep me close to him? I don't deserve it, true, but his grace is enough, and I don't have to have my head hung down low at the table. I'm invited to the table with the king of the universe, I don't, want to, I don't want to approach it with shame. Do I deserve to sit at his table? No way. Do you deserve it? No. But you don't want to hang your head in shame because his grace is that good. That's what he's saying. That's what we see. That's what we see with the entire Gentile people. A bunch of people who worshiped everything but Jesus. And God said, yeah, I'm gonna send my son to die for those wicked people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to do the list and be Christian enough and the scales tip in in our favor. While we were sinners, he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to die for them. Would we believe that? Would we trust? Would you believe? Would you leave here believing that you are not alone? Would you leave here believing that you don't have to earn it? Would you leave here believing that there is grace? And behind all of that, there is a mysterious God that we still do not understand. And as we wrap up this chapter 9 through 11 picture of a God who elects and calls and is mysterious and, and does what he wills and does what he pleases, I want to end with these verses. It's how Paul ends chapter 11, and it's this doxology that he does at the end of, of chapter 11, and it's, uh, it's so good, because it really puts in perspective, we don't understand, we don't know, we don't see the way he sees. If you remember, when I preached Romans 9, I referenced Job, and this revelation that Job got from God, when God said, Job, your life has been hard, but you don't have the perspective that I have. My ways are bigger than yours. Paul acknowledges that here. He says in verse 33, oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for deep theology. Thank you for deep truth, God, of who you are. Thank you that you're a God who has given us um, not only the Bible, but given us even this rich book of Romans. And even in chapter 11 today, you you ask and you answer these theological questions that honestly um, so many people probably weren't even asking themselves this morning. And yet we know your word doesn't return void. And so we get to study it and we get to look at how you've interacted with the Jews and we get to look at how you've interacted with those who are not initially in your family. And we get to see your grace and your kindness and we get to see things also, Lord, that we don't understand. And so this morning, Father, we wanna come to you with all of our doubts, all the ways where our trust is weak and and our trust malfunctions. And God, we bring that to you, Lord. And we say, God, would you increase our trust? You have been telling a story from the beginning of history. You have been doing a work since Abraham and even before that. And you have had this story and it's always been in your control. And so now, God, we sit in this coffee shop and and we ask, Lord, where are we in that story? God, would you show us who you are? Would you grow our trust for those who feel alone, Lord, Would it not just be an intellectual agreement that we're not alone, but God, would our faith increase? For those who are stuck in self-righteousness and works, God, would you set us free by believing that, no, no, your grace really is enough? And for those who are stuck in shame and, and doubt that we are worthy, would you show us that, yes, your grace is enough for us as well? Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, as they sit under your word, sit under your spirit. Remind us what is true for your glory in the name of Jesus, amen.